He's looking at the fulfillment of all things at the end of time. So there's a future orientation to this ultimate purpose of redemption. Second thing you can say about it, the ultimate purpose of redemption, is it's reconciliation-focused. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 10. In the dispensation of the fullness of the time, God has made known unto us individually the, the, the mystery of his will. He has redeemed us so that, in that dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things that are in heaven and things that are in earth. There's this, there's this reconciliation. There's this gathering together in one all things. Now, what is that talking about? That's talking about the, this fact. In the fall, back in the Garden of Eden, in the fall, when Adam took that bite of that fruit, everything splintered, broke. Fragmentation began, and that brokenness and that fragmentation and that division and that death caused by the fall has only spread and, and expressed itself throughout the entire cosmos, that which God has created. That's paradise lost in Genesis chapter 3. And the ultimate purpose of redemption is paradise restored, the bringing together of all things, things in the heavens and things on earth, bringing together all things. This is what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. If you want to take the time to look at that this afternoon, you have a few minutes to peruse the scriptures. It's the restoring of all things to himself. It's reconciliation focused or restoration focused, we could say. And then the third thing we can say about this ultimate purpose of redemption is that it is Christ-centered. It is Christ-centered. Our verse says that he might bring together all things, he might bring together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Notice the emphasis there, the double emphasis. He's doing all of this in Christ. He's doing this in him. This is a Christ-centered, ultimate purpose of reconciliation. So watch this. Listen. Christ, listen, Christ is not only the means by which God will unite all creation. Christ is the center and the focal point through whom and for whom all of this will take place. You see this in Revelation 22, at the end of time, the fullness of the time. Listen to verses 1 to 4. Follow along if you have it in your Bible. John writes, he, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Lamb. Why the Lamb? Why does he say the Lamb? Because it was the Lamb that was slain to pay the price of your redemption. There he is. In the midst of the street of it, and on the other, either side of the river, there was a tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. Paradise is restored. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his 
face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Christ-centered, Christ-focused. Christ is the center. Christ is the focal point of your redemption, not only now, but the ultimate purpose of your redemption is Christ. Now, the question is, when you think of Revelation 22, 1-4, is will you be there? Have you been redeemed? You've heard the glorious gospel of Christ. Have you turned in faith, repentant faith, to the one who has redeemed from sin, who's paid the redemption price and called upon him to save you? Have you been redeemed? Call upon him today. Turn from your sin today. Let him redeem you from your sin today as you turn and you trust in the Redeemer. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning that you would give us just some way of seeing a glimpse of the glory of your grace in redemption. As we see the power of the cross and what was affected at Calvary, when Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, shed his own blood on that cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, the first chapter. In Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, the main character in the story, made a promise to a dying single mom that he would, for the rest of his life, take care of her young daughter. He would take her as his own. The problem is that the young girl, Cosette, was enslaved by uh, a pretty evil couple named the Thenardiers. They ran a tavern uh, that was like a cross between a hotel and a bar back in the day. And uh, they used her, Cosette, as a, as a slave, basically. Um, and so Valjean was not intimidated by that, and he was determined to carry out his commitment to uh, the now-deceased mom, and he made his way to the Thenardiers, uh, said that he was taking Cosette to himself, and they demanded uh, a ransom price. And Valjean opened up his wallet and pulled out the appropriate number of francs and handed them over an exorbitant number, an exorbitant price that he paid to free this little girl from bondage. But he did so. And she became his by virtue of that ransom price. Now, although she enjoyed, Cosette enjoyed her newfound freedom, it was several years before she really understand, understood the significance of what had taken place um, on the part of Valjean paying that price. In ancient Egypt, God's chosen people, the children of Israel, they were in bondage to some cruel taskmasters, the Egyptian overlords, and they, likewise, had no way of escape, none whatsoever. But God graciously pledged to Moses that he would redeem his people from bondage, and Moses would lead them out. 
the redemption price was paid by the blood of the firstborn of Egypt, but also by a substitutionary sacrifice, the Passover lamb. Again, the children of Israel enjoyed the benefits of that ransom being paid, and they enjoyed the benefits of their newfound freedom, but it was quite some time before they understood the significance of that blessing, the blessing of their redemption. In the opening letter of Paul's uh, epistle to the Ephesians, he wrote one long, very, very long sentence. It's verses 3 through 14, and I want to read it again this week. We read it last Lord's Day, but we'll read it again today and read it again the next time we gather and look at this passage. Beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Brief prayer. Our Father and our God, I pray that from what we look at this morning in this, within this sentence, you would bless to our hearts the truth of the spiritual blessing of redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The main idea of this sentence is, uh, is seen right at the beginning of the sentence. Verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, praise be, extol, honor should be lifted up to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So the, 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 the thrust of this sentence is that God is to be praised, he is to be extolled, he is to be honored, he is to be worshipped. The rest of verse 3 gives a general explanation of why he is to be blessed, why he is to be praised and extolled and honored, because he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Now, the rest of the sentence, down through verse 14, expands upon those spiritual blessings. It explains what those blessings are and expounds upon them to some degree. And basically, there are three of them 
that three general blessings, spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. And those are the following. One is the gracious decree of election. The gracious decree of election in verses 3 through 6. That is, your salvation as it was determined individually before time began. The second great blessing is the gracious work of redemption. That is, your salvation as it was secured in time and place. We see that in verses uh, 7 through 10. And then the third great blessing in this passage is the gracious gift of an eternal inheritance. That is, your salvation as it is fulfilled in time to come, brought out in verses 11 through 14. So this morning what I want to do is focus on verses 7 to 10, and I want you to see the glory of God's grace as it is manifested in your redemption, in the divine work of redemption. And having seen the glory of God's grace manifested in the divine work of redemption, I want you to respond in humble and grateful praise. Well, notice, first of all, the glory of God's grace. See it, the glory of God's grace, in the nature of redemption itself. This is brought out in verse 7, the nature of redemption. Begins with, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to this riches of grace. Redemption can be, it doesn't matter what the form of redemption is or who the object or, or who the subject of redemption is. There, there are some basic characteristics of redemption. So whether it's Jean Valjean redeeming Cosette or God redeeming Israel from Egypt or you being redeemed uh, in the 21st century. The nature of redemption is basically the same. Someone is in bondage. They're in some form of slavery, and they have no means to escape. And in this case, the one who is in bondage with no means to escape is you and me. Paul puts it this way, in whom we have redemption. Who is the we? Well, we go all the way back to the very first verse. He's writing to those who are saints at Ephesus, those who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And as you go on through the passage in the beginning of his long sentence, the we are the same ones who are, in verse uh, 4, chosen in Christ, who are predestinated to the adoption of children, who are made accepted in the beloved. It is we who have this redemption. But it is before that redemption occurs, we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. This is why we need to be redeemed. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And there's not anything you can do about it when you're a corpse. There is nothing that someone who is dead can do about their condition of deadness. They're hopeless, they're helpless. That is our condition. We need to be redeemed from that condition of deadness. And because of that condition of deadness, we are eternally doomed in our trespasses and sins. This was the, this was the, uh, the statement of doom expressed in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. 
And that's not just talking about physical death. That's talking about permanent and eternal death. That's talking about spiritual death that never ends. The wages of sin is death. So someone is in bondage and needs to be redeemed. They are enslaved with no hope whatsoever and no means whatsoever of escaping. And that someone is you and me. The second characteristic of redemption is that someone determines a redemption price. Someone determines a redemption price. And that someone, in this case, is God himself. It is God who said the wages of sin is death. It is God who said to Adam and Eve and to Adam in the garden, if you eat of that fruit, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. It is God who determined the redemption price. It is death. And, more specifically, a bloody death. Because Leviticus 17 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness. There's no release from sins. So the God who said the wages of sin is death determined that the only way that that wage can be dealt with, that redemption can occur, is if there is a death that is a bloody death, and the blood of that death can be applied and can be the redeeming price that is paid. With a bloody death, there can be redemption from sins. There can be the forgiveness of sins. All right? So, someone is in bondage. That's us. Someone sets the redemption price. That's God. Then thirdly, in in any kind of redemption, someone pays that redemption price. Someone has to pay it. Well, who is it in this case? Well, look at our text. The first two words of verse 7 tell us that that someone is in whom we have. Well, who is the whom? To whom does the whom refer? It refers back to the last, uh, last couple of words in verse 6. The beloved. In the beloved we have redemption. So the someone in whom our redemption is found, the someone who pays the redemption price is the beloved. Well, who's the beloved? A couple of occurrences in the gospel account, there were gospel records that we could turn to that answer that question. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes, in to where John, comes to where John is baptizing in the wilderness, and he tells John, I am to be baptized by you. John protests a little bit, but finally he, he, he accedes to that. And he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, remember, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And the first person of the, of the Trinity, the Father, speaks from heaven, and he says, this is this one, is my beloved Son, He is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He said the same thing again on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. You remember that scene? Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured before them. His garments are as a brilliant, glorious, glowing brightness and something like they'd never seen before, and they don't even know how to respond to that. 
Peter's all befuddled and makes a fool of himself again up there on the mountaintop. But, but after that foolishness on the part of Peter, again, a voice comes from heaven and the Father says, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This one, Jesus, is the beloved Son. So who's the beloved? When Paul writes and says, we have been accepted in the beloved in whom we have redemption. He is speaking of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge, he says, we are not, nor can we ever be, self-redeemed. Christ is our Redeemer. The Beloved is our Redeemer. The Lord Jesus is our Redeemer. He pays the redemption price. Remember what that redemption price is? A bloody death. A bloody death. The redemption price is paid in his blood. In whom, look at our text again, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Look over a page probably in your Bible to chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And look with me at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 9, keep your finger there in Ephesians 1. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. It says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, for us. Jesus Christ paid the redemption price, but he paid it in his own blood. Now, let, let me make this, make, make something, I hope, clear that you understand. What we're talking about here is not specifically and exclusively the red corpuscles that coursed through the veins of the man Christ Jesus. It is not simply the red corpuscles, the blood, that was in the body of the man, Christ, the God-man, Christ Jesus, that is the redemption price in and of itself. Otherwise, now here, let me listen, explain, listen. Otherwise, when Jesus was 15 years old, working as an apprentice in his father's carpenter shop, Joseph's carpenter shop, learning the trade, and he's working with those tools, undoubtedly, at some point along the way, he's, he's uh, chiseling away on a piece of wood, and every carpenter, every finished carpenter or a craftsman in wood will tell you, he's going, to, he's going to slip, and there's going to be a slice. There goes a, there goes, there goes a cut on the finger. And when Jesus is in the carpenter shop working uh, with these woodworking tools and he's crafting a, a chair or a table or something and, and he slips with a chisel and cuts his finger and his blood spilled out on the ground or wherever, 
even caught perhaps in some kind of a rag to stop the the bleeding. That wasn't enough. That was not sufficient to pay your redemption price. When, the, when, the, when Paul is speaking here about we are, we are redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ, he's speaking of all that is involved in his, in his bloody sacrificial death on the cross. In other words, his blood stands for the merits, <clears throat> the merits of the atonement that were affected by and associated with Christ's bloody cross death. Blood stands as a a figure of speech, if you will, for the whole cross experience of Jesus as he's hanging on that cross and pouring out his lifeblood on that cross that ends with his yielding up of the ghost. It is his bloody death that pays your redemption price. Someone paid the redemption price, and that someone is the beloved, and what he paid was his own life's blood on the cross. And a fourth characteristic about the nature of redemption, and I want you to see the glory of God's grace in all of this, all right? See the glory of God's grace in the nature of redemption. Someone is in bondage, they're enslaved, and they can't do anything about it. That's you, that's me. We're enslaved in our sin. Someone sets the redemption price, and the redemption price is a bloody cross death, and it must be, it must be a sacrifice that is spotless and sinless, by the way. And that someone has to pay the redemption price that you and I cannot pay because we're not spotless, and that someone is the Lamb, Christ Jesus. His blood is shed on that cross to pay the redemption price And then the fourth characteristic of the nature of redemption is that those who are redeemed, those who are redeemed are freed when the price is paid. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And in that paying of the redemption price, your shackles are broken. As the song we, um, we just sang said, my chains fell off. My chains fell off. I'm released from the shackles of my sin. I want you to notice here, Forgiveness of sins, that word is literally or technically trespass. Talked in a Sunday school hour this morning in a Sunday school lesson about different words for sin. And here in the New Testament, the word translated or that means trespass is referring to any voluntary or involuntary transgression of the will and law of God. It is any form of rebellion against the law of God. It is any false step or failure intentional or non-intentional. And it is from all of that that you are released. The wages of sin 
is death. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But because the redemption price has been paid, you who are redeemed, you have been released from the shackles of your sin. You are released from that penalty. You are released from that bondage. And you are, listen, you are released completely, completely. The completeness of that forgiveness is seen in the word itself. The word translated here, forgiveness, means exactly that, release. It means pardon. It means dismissal. It's actually the word, uh, the verb form, is actually a word that is used uh, speaking of divorce in the New Testament. When the one party puts away the other party, it is a, it is a break that is done. And, and, and there's nothing you can do about that break. This is your forgiveness. There is a break from the penalty and the burden and the bondage to sin that is complete. And listen, this is exactly what Jesus came to do. Remember that? In, in, back in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue, and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised. This is what Jesus came to do, to set at liberty those that are bruised by the curse of sin. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus is in that upper room with his disciples on the last night before his betrayal and arrest and then the crucifixion the next day. And remember what he said when he took the cup? He says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins, to pay the redemption price for sins. The redeemed are freed when the price is paid. And then lastly, let me say this about redemption, about the nature of redemption. Going back to verse 3, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with spiritual blessings, the nature of a blessing. It is a gift that is bestowed upon someone. And this is a gift that is bestowed upon you who are redeemed. It's a gift. This isn't something you have a claim to. Remember Cosette in Les Miserables. She's just a little girl. She's in bondage. She, she has no claim on Val, Jean Valjean. She has no right to his money. She has no way to go to him and say, you must release, you must pay the redemption price so I can be free. She has no claim. What happens? He comes into the house or the tavern and he opens up his wallet and he says, how much? And, and Mr. Thenardier says, how many francs this is going to be? An exorbitant sum. And Valjean pulls out the francs and he hands it over. This is a gift. 
see the glory of God's grace in the nature of redemption. Ah, but then see the glory of God's grace in the application of redemption in the last part of verse 7 down through verse 9. The application of redemption. And notice that this, the application of redemption is wholly of grace. The last part of verse 7 says, according, this is this forgiveness of sins, this redemption that we have through his blood, is according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us. Here's the thing. You cannot measure the value of God's grace. The riches of his grace are superabundant. It's like the scripture says elsewhere, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. You cannot measure the value of God's grace, but what you can do is you can enjoy the lavishness of it all. He, as the first part of verse 8 says, he has lavished this grace upon us. He's lavished it upon us. God applies the blessing of redemption wholly of grace. But look at the last part of verse 8. And, and look at how God applies the blessing of redemption precisely. He says, He has abounded toward us with His grace in all wisdom and prudence. What's He talking about here? When you when you think about and talk about this whole matter of redemption from sin, the whole subject as it's talked about and brought out in the gospel message seems to be utterly foolish and absolutely reckless. What do I mean? Well, turn back in your Bible a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at verses 21 through 24. First Corinthians 1.21 says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness, literally here, of the thing preached. It, it pleased God by the foolishness of what was preached to save them that believe. In other words, that which was preached seems to be utterly foolish. It seems to be totally reckless. But go on here in verse 22. For the Jews require a sign. There's no sign. The Jews seek wisdom. There's no wisdom in this. But we preach Christ crucified. And what is that? Well, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to them who are the called, critical point, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Oh, this gospel message of redemption seems to be foolish. It seems to be reckless to those who have no eyes to see, who have no ears to hear, who have no heart to receive it. It seems foolish. It seems reckless. But in reality, it is actually wise. It is prudent. It is intentional. Look at the rest of this text. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says to those who have been redeemed, but in Corinth this time, he says, you see your calling, brethren. 
How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen, there's our word again, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Notice the, notice the wisdom of God. Notice the prudence of God. Notice the intentionality of God. He has intentionally chosen those who the world looks at as being foolish, those whom the world thinks as are, are wise or are weak. And in verse 28, he has chosen those that the world looks at as being base, the base things of the world, the things that are despised by the world. God has chosen and the things that are not, the things that are of nothing, no account to the rest of the world. To those God, God has chosen those to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? All of this was intentional. Why? What was the intention? Why has God so chosen these kinds of people, people like you and me? Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This is all very wise. This is all very prudent. This is all very intentional on God's part. He says, but of him, verse 30, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What am I wanting you to see this morning? I want you, I'm wanting you to see the glory of God's grace in redemption, in redeeming you. I'm helping one of the commentators I read by uh, paraphrasing a little bit of what he wrote, and this is, this is what I came up with. The lavish outpouring of God's grace in the shedding and applying of Christ's bloody death to sin-ruined and sin-enslaved souls, listen, was intentionally, precisely ordained and carried out by our all-wise God, who knew and understood completely what he was doing, and he knew and understood how every human being would respond or react. Further, he ensured that those whom he chose and predestinated to adoption would respond with repentant faith in Christ Jesus. Why? All of this to the end that he would receive all the glory. God applies the blessing of redemption precisely. And then in, in the first part of verse 9, notice how God applies the, the blessing of redemption particularly. Because verse 9, back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, the first part of it says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now let's park on that for just a minute and divide it into two ways of emphasizing the, verse, the, the statement. First of all, notice, God, look at this, God causes you to know the mystery of his will. You see it? Having made known to us. God has not caused some to know, but he has caused you to know. 
Now, some of our hymn writers help us with this. Think, for example, of John Newton in his hymn, Amazing Grace. He says, my eyes were blind. I once was blind, but now I see. Well, how is it that he sees when his eyes were blind? What opened his eyes? It is the grace of God. It is the determined grace of God as he applies particularly this grace of redemption. He caused John Newton to know the mystery of his will. And the hymn we sang earlier, and can it be, that third stanza says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. God's eye diffused a quickening way, a ray. God caused the writer, the hymn writer, to know the mystery of his will. And when God caused him to know, when his eye diffused a quickening ray, he says, I woke up. I woke. God causes you to know. And then notice how God causes you to know the mystery of his will. What is it that God caused you to know? God caused you to know the math tables? God caused you to know how the solar system works? No. God caused you to know the mystery of his will, which is a, a reference to the gospel itself. You just could summarize it in that way. God caused you to know this glorious gospel of redemption. Again, the hymn, and can it be? The dungeon flamed with light. What is that poetic reference to anyway? I saw the glorious gospel, the light of the glorious gospel has shined in my dungeon. I could see it. God has caused me to see the mystery of his will. The dungeon flamed with light. And then notice that the last part of verse 9, that God acts strictly according to his pleasure and purpose. He made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. And that same theme, that same idea runs through this sentence, doesn't it? I'm wanting you to see this morning the glory of God's grace in redemption and, and one key to seeing the glory of God's grace is to see that he acts strictly according to his pleasure and purpose. That's exactly the way he acted in choosing before the foundation of the world. Back in verse 4, he's chosen, before, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he goes on to say, furthermore, in that choosing, he predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. On what basis? on the basis of how good you are, how good you would be someday, how obedient you might become if he were to do this. No, 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 no. He did so solely according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what he wanted to do. This is what he chose to do. And furthermore, this is what he purposed to do. Your redemption. And then I want you to see finally the glory of God's grace in the ultimate purpose of redemption. 
And this is found in verse 10. Now, we might put it this way. We might say this, that the initial purpose of redemption is individual. It's one at a time. That is, where God has purposed to redeem you uh, from the family of disobedience. Uh, see, we read in chapter 2, the end of verse 2, he says, you, are, you were uh, working, you were among the children of disobedience. At the end of verse 3, he says, you were by nature the children of wrath. But God, in his grace, has redeemed you individually from that family of disobedience and wrath. And in his grace, he has redeemed you individually by, with the purpose of adopting you into his family, as we see at the beginning of verse 5, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. And redemption is the means of that adoption. How are you adopted into his family? By means of redemption. So, so there's, an, there's an, a sense in which the initial purpose of redemption is personal, and individual. But the ultimate overarching purpose of redemption is much bigger. In fact, verse 10 tells, tells us it's corporate. Look at, look at verse 10 and notice three things about this ultimate purpose of redemption. It is in the first place future-oriented. He says, so that he's done all of this, so that in the dispensation or in the plan of the fullness of the times. So he's looking off into the future, Paul is. He's looking at the fulfillment of all things at the end of time. So there's a future orientation to this ultimate purpose of redemption. Second thing you can say about it, the ultimate purpose of redemption, is it's reconciliation-focused. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 10. In the dispensation of the fullness of the time, God has made known unto us individually the, the, the mystery of his will. He has redeemed us so that, in that dispensation of the fullness of the time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things that are in heaven and things that are in earth. There's this, there's this reconciliation, there's this gathering together in one, all things. Now, what is that talking about? That's talking about the, this fact. In the fall, back in the Garden of Eden, in the fall, when Adam took that bite of that fruit, everything splintered, broke. Fragmentation began, and that brokenness and that fragmentation and that division and that death caused by the fall has only spread and, and expressed itself throughout the entire cosmos, that which God has created. That's paradise lost in Genesis chapter 3. And the ultimate purpose of redemption is paradise restored, the bringing together of all things, things in the heavens and things on earth, bringing together all things. This is what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. If you want to take the time to look at that this afternoon, you have a few minutes to peruse the Scriptures. It's the restoring of all things 
to himself. It's reconciliation-focused or restoration-focused, we could say. And then the third thing we can say about this ultimate purpose of redemption is that it is Christ-centered. It is Christ-centered. Our verse says that he might bring together all things, he might bring together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Notice the emphasis there, the double emphasis. He's doing all of this in Christ. He's doing this in him. This is a Christ-centered, ultimate purpose of reconciliation. So watch this. Listen. Christ, listen, Christ is not only the means by which God will unite all creation. Christ is the center and the focal point through whom and for whom all of this will take place. You see this in Revelation 22, at the end of time, the fullness of the time. Listen to verses 1 to 4. Follow along if you have it in your Bible. John writes, he, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Lamb. Why the Lamb? Why does he say the Lamb? Because it was the Lamb that was slain to pay the price of your redemption. There he is. In the midst of the street of it, and on the other, either side of the river, there was a tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. Paradise is restored. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Christ-centered, Christ-focused. Christ is the center. Christ is the focal point of your redemption, not only now, but the ultimate purpose of your redemption is Christ. Now, the question is, when you think of Revelation 22, 1-4, is will you be there? Have you been redeemed? You've heard the glorious gospel of Christ. Have you turned in faith, repentant faith, to the one who has redeemed from sin, who's paid the redemption price, and called upon him to save you? Have you been redeemed? Call upon him today. Turn from your sin today. Let him redeem you from your sin today as you turn and you trust in the Redeemer. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning that you would give us just some way of seeing a glimpse of the glory of your grace in redemption. As we see the power of the cross and what was effected at Calvary, when Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, shed his own blood on that cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.